So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Buenos dias. Just uh, seeding the algorithm to make sure you get Spanish ads. Popping up. <laughs> We're a full service podcast here. Oh, we could do Russian, you know, Guten Morgen, you know, German. Just wherever you are, we're just going to make sure it uh, pops up. Or Gut Morong, as they say in Sweden. So, hey, everybody, regardless of what language you're listening to us in, welcome to episode one. Th- can you believe it, Murph? 132. I'm, I'm shocked. I'm surprised. I'm pleased. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of enough adjectives to describe that. Okay, Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I did it, but I didn't do it. But I really did do it. I don't I don't know if I did it or not. Just kidding. People don't get wrapped <laughs> around the axle. <laughs> Another elderly citizen who can't recall what's going on. No, I mean Murph, not Biden. So <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Morgan's personal phone number is one eight hundred. Call me now. <laughs> <laughs> bite me. One eight hundred bite me now. All right. Hey, guys. Well, hey, guys, welcome back. As you can see, it's already been one of those days. Murph is still at the beach. Uh, it's actually getting warmer here. We may go hit the winery today after we get done recording. So. Nice. Very nice. It's going to be nice. going to actually hit above 60, which is, you know, I know a freeze warning for you folks down there in Florida. But uh, for <laughs> us, it's like, damn. Well, just so you know, it is cloudy this morning. So, uh, you know, wait oh. for the sun to come out. It's coming this afternoon, though, but we're at oh. uh, 71 degrees now. 71. Fine. We're at uh, 54. We're getting there. We're climbing. Well, right. enough about the weather reports. Let's get into a little bit of housekeeping, guys. Hey, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. And actually appreciate on Spotify, you can actually leave comments on the episode. So we got a lot of good comments. We'll talk about that in a second. But on Ken Mead and our episode about Las Vegas, you know, and the Las Vegas shooter, the Route 91 Harvest Festival. So, but head on over there. It really means a lot to us. Uh, you know, it helps us obviously get discovered and uh, helps us with the rankings, you know, because we want to be number one. We're not there yet, but we will soon be. Hey, but also head on over to our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. That's where you're going to find the book for our next guest we'll talk about here in just a little bit. Uh, Also, follow us on that thing called social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And also make sure that you just go to Facebook.com and type in Game of Crimes fans. Join our exclusive fan club run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. She rules with an iron fist with a velvet glove. And don't make her mad. I'm telling you now, you don't want to see that. Don't make her mad. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. Hey, it's, you know, some people have disappeared. You know, hey, don't want to say anything, but, you know, I understand they're, (laughs) you know, we're down a couple listeners, people who ticked her off. So now she wouldn't do that. That's right. And she, she, uh, she gave me a, um, she told me what she wanted me to do to get out of the doghouse when it comes to the narco meter. So, Sandy, I'm working on it, sweetie. Hey, but we got we got but we'll talk about the two. We got a couple other great things lined up too, though. So but hey, but where you really gotta be is Patreon. Patreon.com slash game of crimes. That's where uh we just released <laughs> I got a lot of comments on our latest episode, 911. What's your emergency? Now who gets the deer, me or the dog? If you haven't listened to that one. <laughs> 
That's still funny. I think it's one of the funniest ones. Uh, I just snorted. <laughs> hold up. Oh, I was driving down the I road. To, I had to dry my eyes on that one. <laughs> yeah, that was that one was good. So, but if you want to know what it is, hey, be part of the club. Go over to patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got our QA coming out, case of the month. You can't make this shit up. Uh, our narco media review, which Murph has almost climbed back out of the hole. Who would have thought Miami Vice would have put you in a hole like that? Oh, and, and it's been months trying to get out. I thought I was out of it, you know, after we did the most recent one on the uh, Griselda But you're close. But, uh, I'm close. I mean, I've, close. I've got to Gris- keep the queen happy. Yeah, Griselda was good, though. And, you know, and again, as you guys want to find out what's the real twist at the end, what do her and Pablo really have in common? Besides being room temperature, you have to listen to the episode <laughs> and find out. <laughs> that was a good series, too. It's uh, yeah. I, in fact, I, I called the executive producer, Eric Newman, and congratulated him on it. Yeah, and you know, again, like he did with uh, Narcos and stuff, it didn't make didn't make her into you know um, the, the the loving, caring, wise you know mother who is you know the patriarch, you know the the benefactor of the community. She was a cold blooded killer, killed her husbands, had well, her husbands know, killed. What I relayed to Eric is, you know, you guys did a good job of of trying to ugly up uh, Sofia Vergara. But you'll never get her as ugly as the real Griselda. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, that's the truth. <laughs> if you think three hours of work, that's where it got. It would have taken 12 hours of work. They wouldn't have had time by the time they got everything on, Sophia, to make her as ugly as the real Griselda. The time to film would have been over. So <laughs> You're not kidding. You're not kidding. And Rough like you times. Say, when you and, yeah, well, like when you and Javi do your presentations and he pulls up that slide, it always kind of revokes it. You know, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does. But as folks, as you can see, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take this we take these stories seriously, but we never, never, never take ourselves serious. And how do we prove that we don't take ourselves seriously, Murph? What is it? What what well, one thing do we engage in on almost every episode to prove that? Well, there's two things. One is we open our mouths and we prove that <laughs> pretty much goofballs the other is we have a very special section which we're ready to bring you now and what is it called is it, murph what is it time for it's time for small, small town, town police, police splatters. dude you're too slow i know you've been down there in florida but we, we got to speed things up there all right i haven't had my nap yet today you know haven't had your nap all right you know well it's only nine o'clock in the morning murph there's still time so <laughs> i got up early got up early. hey by the way um you know, Murph, have you ever had somebody said you can't arrest me because I'm here on a higher authority? You know, like they, you get the super secret squirrel agents that, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, covert agent for the CIA or I'm working undercover for the FBI. You ever had one of those people? No, I've had people tell me I couldn't arrest them and I proved them wrong, but I haven't had the other. Well, here's one. This is about as high as authority can you get. Um, Carnell Gittens, what a name. Carnell Gittens claimed that he had checked with Christ and secured permission before he broke into the public library in Sandusky, Ohio, population 25,905. Salute. He was using, by the way, he also got in, he was using an exterior outlet to charge his phone. Gittins, who twice had previously been busted trespassing at the library, cited Christ when a patrolman asked what he was doing on the property. He was charged with criminal trespass, booked into the jail where he remained locked up on a $1,750 bond. Following a 2023 arrest, Gittins, who is nicknamed Cloud, told police he was from Canada, eh? 
and he's been wandering Ohio for the past year. However, the newspaper reached out to Christ, but he could not be reached for comment. Uh, I think you have to do that in prayer. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wow, that was really written in the story. That was written in the article. Christ could not be reached <laughs> for comment. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because my accountant, her their last name is spelled Christ, but it's pronounced Chris. But uh, you know, I'd probably call them and see what their thoughts were on it. Well, here's here's my thoughts on this next one. This comes to us from North Dakota. Uh, North Dakota up there, eh? Uh, Grand Forks County. So, uh, Murph, you know, I remember when my daughter was young, you couldn't say anything in front of her because she would snitch you out. Well, Daddy said this, and Daddy said that, you know. Well, a North Dakota cops pulled over a vehicle and recognized the strong odor of marijuana. The driver's four-year-old daughter was in the car with her, and uh, she goes, that's Mommy's. (laughs) Oh, that's even worse. They found a glass marijuana pipe uh, in the back seat, and the little child goes, Mommy smokes weed all the time. This is a quote. Oh, oh. Well, I hope that child's okay. <laughs> uh, well, that's funny, so, though, isn't it? Well, Caitlin, she started young, apparently, because Caitlin, the mother, is 20. Her daughter is four. She was charged with felony, child endangerment, misdemeanor possession of drug paraphernalia. Um, But, you know, what is it? You know, like I told somebody one time, a lesson I learned, never rob a bank with my daughter. She will rat me out in the first, you know, 30 seconds. (laughs) And I got to tell you, too, real quickly, too, when you watch, uh, I've been watching cops uh, on Fox Nation on the streaming stuff. But in the Uh intro... They showed these two ladies uh, sitting there, and the cops go, "Okay, who's this?" And before he could even get out, "Who's is this?" The one lady is pointing her finger at the other one. <laughs> right, right, just that fast, man. No honor among thieves. I finally, police. Finally, Murph. Yes, Fargo. This happened in Fargo, eh? Police were summoned hey. to the South Sports Arena in Fargo by witnesses, reporting somebody was driving erratically. Right, driving erratically on the ice, driving erratically on the ice driving a Zamboni for the third time only in North Dakota history. (laughs) Uh, uh, The the young man, Stephen Anderson, 27, was driving the ice resurfacing machine in an erratic manner. So uh, cops stopped him on the Zamboni, concluded he was under the influence. Now, in a Twitter post with the hashtag Bumper Zamboni, a spectator at the arena reported, I've never seen a Zamboni have so much trouble around the edges. <laughs> Shocker, this dude was fired after his arrest. So he was also busted in December for driving a car in possession of drug paraphernalia. So he's also got another conviction for consumption. I think alcohol is a problem. He's got a conviction for public consumption of alcohol. So <sighs> just even looking, I was you know doing some research, but a check of the archives only reveals two prior arrests for drunk Zamboni, Zamboniling. Anyway, 2005, a 63-year-old New Jersey man was popped after a manager called cops to report he was recklessly careening around the men in sports arena. And in 2012, a Minnesota man was nabbed after rabbit, repeatedly bouncing the Zamboni off the sideboards in a rink in Apple Valley. Which, by the way, that's where my uh, sister lives uh, with her uh, husband, who's also called my brother-in-law and my two nieces and nephew, Apple Valley. Wow. But, you know, I'm thinking back about these drivers, and it just makes me say, dude, you had one job. You only had one job. <laughs> Drunk Zamboni. Well, uh, anyway. Well, I guess that's better than having him out on the highway, right? <laughs> that's right. Well, confined on a rink, at least, you know, it was – although it would be kind of hard to do a sobriety test. Hey, look, stand here. I can't. We're on ice. 
you know? <laughs> yep. Yep. Hey, well, anyway, uh, this next episode comes to us. Actually, it was introduced by a friend of mine. Uh, so Pete Lamont, Pete and I go way back to uh, 2002. We were started working together uh, in a uh, consulting company, KPMG Consulting, then became Bearing Point. We're both working in Homeland Security, intelligence, community, justice stuff. So anyway, uh, he'd run into her and recommended this next guest to us. So this next one, her name is Julie Farnham. Now, Julie wrote a book was just published uh, in January, actually. Uh, we were recording her on January 3rd. It's called Domestic Darkness, an Insider's Account of the January 6th Insurrection and the Future of Right-Wing Extremism. Now, we, we we tried to keep this, you know, pretty much down the road. Neither Murph or I wanted to get political about this as much as, you know, hey, she's got her point of view, absolutely entitled to it. She took the time to write the book. But we mo- we wanted to more focus on, okay, what was happening? Because she was the uh, assistant director of intelligence for the Capitol Police. So she had a frontline seat. She actually was two blocks away when this all was going down. So that's what we talked to her about. We said, hey, what's going on? You know, what kind of reports were you writing? What kind of intelligence products were being provided? Who was helping? Who wasn't? So I thought it was interesting. And then I know, Murph, uh, you talked to about the 10 recommendations at the end of the book. You really liked those. Absolutely. It, it was. And, and quite honestly, I wasn't sure that I was going to like this book. Uh, it turned out I was completely wrong, which happens, seems to happen more frequently as I get older. But uh, and, and you'll hear me tell her during the interview, I wholeheartedly agree with all 10 of her recommendations. I think they're they're timely. I think they're well thought out. Um, I, I apologize to Julie for the, the problems she had in a male dominated agency when she first got to the Capitol Police, um, had people listen to her. You know, and, and I mean, a new person coming in is always, you got to let them, uh, you got to give them some time to see if they know what they're talking about or not. But had they listened to Julie, maybe certain things would have been avoided. So uh, just really Especially proud. like getting the intel to the officers out there that were working. I mean, it's like some of the stuff didn't even get disseminated to the frontline people. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, we've all seen what happened, regardless of what side of the political forum you come down on. Uh, in my opinion, that should never have happened in our capital. You know, that was an attack on our capital. That's something that happens in a third world country, not here in the United States. Um, but, you know, go to Patreon and we'll probably complain a little bit more about it over there. But uh, Julie, I think she did a fantastic job on on this book here and, and seriously just cannot thank her enough for taking the time to come on the show. Yeah. So, well, Murph, but if we're going to hear about it, I have to ask you. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes? Oh, yeah. So, everybody, you're going to get some insider information here. So, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Listen to what Julie's got to say. While this episode won't come out right when we want it to. We are recording it just short of the a date that this next guest is going to talk to us about. So we're going to be talking about the events that happened on January 6th. Um, and we, you know, Murph and I are the types, we like to get all points of view and we love discussing things. So, but we, you came to us, Julie, by way of a friend of a friend, right? So mutual friends, right? And so we're going to kick this off. So first of all, welcome Julie Farnham. Um, to Game of Crime. So, Julie, as we always say, yay, welcome. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah. Hey, but but we say that now. Wait till this is over. Um, so, <laughs> so okay, I'm as, ready for it. All right. Mm-hmm. As we do with everybody, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. You know, we want to talk to you. How did you get started in this thing of ours? How did you get started down the intelligence, down the law enforcement path? I mean, were you bored one day in college and decided, what the heck, you know, let's go for, you know, a ride and take a cop car out? Or did, you know, how did this happen? Yeah, I don't know. Poor life choices. I don't know. But um, (laughs) (laughs) isn't that the story of all of our lives? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, all kidding aside, um, I kind of fell into intelligence accidentally. Um, Going way back, you know, I was working with the International Rescue Committee in their immigration clinic in Boston. um, And this is when I was in grad school. And the right, maybe like three days before I graduated from grad school, I had an interview with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is a component of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, And I had said to someone, like, I don't have a plan B, so if I don't get this job, I don't know what I'm going to do. But fortunately, I did get the job and spent a little over 15 years with Homeland Security and working mostly in immigration. And immigration has a lot of similarities with intelligence. There's a lot of fraud in immigration. There's a lot of national security issues in immigration. So I kind of just like ended up in intelligence. I had worked a lot with um, the Boston Marathon bombing. I had done a lot of work with the San Bernardino terrorist attack. And so when a position... By the way, just to put a plug in for us. So Ed Davis is a friend of mine. So we talked, we, we, we had him on, we talked about, um, the Boston marathon bombing. And, uh, we also had one of the guys, uh, actually we talked to one of the commanders that was responded to the San Bernardino terrorist attack. So Eric McBride, uh, Eric McBride, Pete McBride. Yeah. So, I mean, I I love the the fact we're getting into this because there's so many crossovers between our prior guests and stuff. So as people can see, this is a very small world. It is a small world. Um, And so when a position opened up at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to head up a division within their intelligence, an intelligence division, uh, they asked me to take the lead on that. So um, in that role, I set up their intelligence watch. USCIS did not have an intelligence watch. So I set that up for them. And then I also oversaw a branch that did the classified vetting of immigration cases that had national security issues. So I dealt a lot with terrorists, um, a lot of trafficking type cases, a lot of transnational gangs like your MS-13s, things like that. Um, So that's how I kind of got into the intelligence world. Um, And then one thing that most people don't know is that USCIS was at the time self-funded. So they're funded by the application fees that they collect. And during the pandemic and with, you know, restricted immigration policies, they were furloughing a lot of people. And I got a furlough notice as well. And I have bills to pay. I have kids. I have mortgage, all that stuff. So a jump ship as did many people. And I landed at the Capitol Police. Maybe not the best place to land right before the presidential election, but that's where I ended up. Well, so let's let's put a pin in that for a second. Let's go back for a little bit and talk about when you, when you said you were growing up, you went to grad school. So tell us about your path from high school to college. Where'd you grow up at? I grew up in Stoneham, Massachusetts, which is just north of Boston. It's about 15 minutes outside of Boston. Uh, went to undergrad at Simmons University, which is an all-women's university. Uh, Simmons College back then, but it's Simmons University now. Um, and straight from there, I graduated a year early from Simmons. Um, so I was, I don't know, very ambitious to get on with my life. Although, <laughs> in retrospect, I should have like spent more time enjoying college. Uh, and then I went straight to law school after that. and. I hated law school, school. Uh, New England School of Law, and I hated law school, and I left. I dropped out. Why did you hate law school? 
Um, I think I maybe didn't have the maturity level at the time. Like, I think I would have been successful, like if I were to go to law school now. Um, and I just, just, um, just like the very tedious and uh, the competitiveness of it. And I just didn't like it. And I didn't want to, I did not want to do that with the rest of my life. So So I left. So when you went into law school, what did you think you were going to do? Did you want to prosecute defense, civil cases, litigation, um, corporate, you know, what, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you started? I think I wanted to do more like environmental type stuff, which is interesting because my career path is nothing like what it, what I thought it was going to be. (laughs) Um, but that's okay. I'm open to like new experiences and, uh, I'm not one of, I'm very, I'm very much a P on the Myers-Briggs, not a J and just like go with the flow and see where the world takes me. And I'm okay with that. Well, the, you said you're from the, uh, from Massachusetts. How did you learn to pronounce your R's? I, you know, when I came down to DC and I've been down to DC in this area for a good 15, 16 years now, people could not understand me at all. Like they could not understand me. So I had to lose the accent just to be heard. So, well, you know, you hear my accent. I had the same problem in DC. <laughs> so I, I, I speak a, Southern. <laughs> I got a buddy of mine at, uh, out of Massachusetts, John Leonard, but he sent me a sign one time. He says how to speak, you know, when you're in Boston. All he had was a cardboard sign that had the letters A-H on it, and he put it in front of Sumna, you know, this. Everything ended in A-H, so <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> hey, and, and you know what? We were remiss before we started. Uh, Julie, tell us about the title of your book, and when did it come out? It's called Domestic Darkness, an Insider's Guide to the January 6th Insurrection and the Future of Right-Wing Extremism. And it came out yesterday, January 2nd, twenty. Congratulations. All right. So we are so happy publication day, as they say, happy pub day. To, so today we're actually recording this on January 3rd. This will come out later, but we just want to let everybody know we were trying to. And by the way, too, thanks for being flexible because yes. Murph, first of all, he decided to go to Saudi Arabia. How often does that come around? Speaking of screening for terrorist stuff, yeah, you should have had him yeah, screen. Yeah, I got stuck in Saudi Arabia one time, but that's another story for another time. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't raise – when you raise stuff like that, we will get into this. So, um, yeah, and then I had an issue last week, and so we were very flexible. So thanks for being flexible. But you know what? It worked out too because it's great to do it right around publication day. So, um yeah. So let's talk about you made the jump from there to Capitol Police. Like you say, everybody, you know, pandemic hit everybody hard. And I don't think a lot of people knew that um, back in the day, uh, you and I were talking beforehand. I worked, I did some stuff that involved the U.S. Uh, visit, the entry exit program, worked with between DOJ information sharing, intelligence sharing and stuff. I didn't realize for a long time that they were self-funded. I mean, that all of those things came from fees. Yeah, most of it. I mean, their E-Verified program was funded through appropriations and then like a couple other small programs. I don't know what it is now because they did get a bailout um, in late 2020, but I had already left at that point. Um, So I don't know what their fees, their funding structure is now. So let's talk a little bit, though, about time your USCIS. Um, So you know, there's got to be a, a couple interesting stories out of that. You talked about getting stuck in Saudi Arabia. Was that during your time with USCIS? It was, um, yes. First of all, was. how did you end up in Saudi Arabia? Was it by accident? Mm-hmm. Were you going no, to Jordan I didn't and you left? Getting to Saudi Arabia, I went to Jordan um, to look at refugee processing and how they were screened to make sure people were not members of ISIS or Al Qaeda or things like that. Um, and so that's why I was in Jordan, and um, I got detained actually coming back. Uh, I got mm-hmm. detained and I was ended up missing my flights. Um, I 
I have my theories as to why I was detained, but I think ultimately it came down to, they knew I was in, involved in intelligence and I was a government official as a f- flying on a government passport. Are we on the, were you on a dip passport or an official passport? An official passport. Um, and wow. so I got detained, searched everything, missed my flight. So I call, you know, our, our travel agency for the department of Homeland security. And of course it was like 3am, you know, us time. And so I wasn't getting, you know, the A team and the woman's like, well, I'm going to have you do a layover in Saudi Arabia. And, you know, you stay there for a little while. And then I'm like, you're going to have a single woman go to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> like, are you crazy? I was like, no, I said, that is not going to work. So um, I, it got straightened out, but I almost ended up in Saudi Arabia. And that would have been an interesting experience. You know, that's unusual that they would detain you on an official or a dip pass. Well, they wouldn't on the dip passport, but even on an official yeah, well, I, I mean, I I have my theories as to why that was, but it happened. I survived. It was an experience. I know when I landed in Islamabad, we were on dip passports, diplomatic passports. We say dip passports. That's, you know, inside baseball talk. But um, we weren't exactly detained. But, you know, as I was telling Murph, so I, we started rewatching Narcos again. And so you remember when uh, Boyd playing you comes across him, the first thing they do is take the passport, you know, and they make a photocopy mm-hmm. of it. Now, did they really do that to you when you came in country in Columbia? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they did. They did Connie's also. Yeah. And see, they tried to do that with our diplomatic passports. Like, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't get to keep those. You don't get to do that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. because we, you know, what it was is ISI, you know, Pakistani intelligence, you know, creators of the Taliban, um, <laughs> what fun that was. But, um, you know, so I don't think a lot of people realize, you know, some of the restrictions around that, but, but go back to that for a second, because a lot of these countries, we were looking at things around, um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you know, and different terrorist groups, Al-Shabaab, you know, we've got so many people coming over to the United States trying to vet and screen a lot of these people is almost a logistical nightmare. So I know you're talking about pushing it farther out, like, okay, somebody gets on a plane in Jordan, somebody gets on a plane in Pakistan. How do we know who they say they are, right? How can we trust them to land in the United States, right? Yeah, there's some of that. And I think, you know, there's, there's protections in place for that. The concern I have is that, you know, to be admitted into the refugee program, you have to go through the United Nations. The United Nations may disqualify someone for, from being a refugee because they think they're terrorists, but they don't share that information with any of the countries that are resettling them. So say, you know, this person gets rejected as being a terrorist, the UN has decided that they participate in a terrorist activity. And then that person comes in through, you know, Mexico or whatever with a new identity. Like we'd never be able to match that previous denial to the refugee program with the new person who's in front of the new person. I use that loosely, you know, in front of us because, and when I question them about that, they're like, well, we're a protection agency. We're not here to enforce security rules. I'm like, well, that's about vulnerability and that's not good. Mm. I know at one time they talked about, especially with the passport process, embedding more use of biometrics so that somebody could not you know, exchange identities. And that's why a lot of the new passports you're seeing have got the enhanced security features, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is that. I mean, but I think for the U.S. too, we primarily use you know, fingerprints. Um, but overseas, a lot of countries use um, iris screening. And so um, there's that too, because if we're only using one type of technology and other countries are using right. another, it's harder to share information. 
Well, and then a lot of countries don't want to share information. Sometimes they're very hostile to sharing information, as we have all found. Hell, even in the United States, we've got people that won't share information. I remember Dennis Miller's favorite joke was, the only thing the CIA and the FBI share is the letter I in their name. And he was right <laughs> for a long time, you know? Unfortunately, that's true. Or was. <laughs> well, I, when I was doing work down at Justice on information sharing, we discovered a lot of, you know, gaps and stuff. But um, I did, <clears throat> early days, I worked on the, uh, terrorist watch list, the consolidation. At one time, there were 25 separate lists. And so uh, that's we've told this story before, but one of the people we looked at was Nawaf al-Hazmi, who was one of the 19 hijackers, probably number two next to Mohammed Atta, and State Department put him on a terrorist watch list in August. Um, but he was already in the country. He'd been stopped by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol back in April and written a traffic ticket. So the guy was already in the country. So, I mean, when you talk this stuff, I don't think a lot of people realize you know, there's what eight billion people in the world now. So trying to figure out who's who in the zoo becomes very difficult. It does, especially if people don't want to share or they're sharing different ways and you know the information doesn't the people don't make the connection that they need to make. So without disclosing obviously sources and methods, you know, and confidential stuff, but give us kind of an idea of a couple things that um when you worked on USCIS that you were successful at in preventing bad people, bad things, you know, from coming into the country? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just say generally that people don't realize that there are people trying to exploit our systems and our immigration system to do bad things. And it was pretty, I mean, the fact that there was a whole branch dedicated to doing that screening tells you something. I mean, we had enough work to go around and very, very often we would find bad things going on. And the challenge was with my team and my team was half intelligence analysts and half immigration officers because intelligence is its own language, as is immigration. And so to make that information that we do find usable in an interview piece, you can't just ask someone, especially if you had the information and you got it, it was classified. You can't just be like, oh, were you a member of ISIS or whatever it may be? <laughs> you had to ask other questions like, you know, where did you work and who did you know and things like that to get to to get the person to uh, to elicit the information that you need in order to make a denial because immigration under the law like if you're denying someone's application you have to give them a reason for it um you know green card applications there are such things as discretionary denials but it's very rare that those would be used so um and if you do a discretionary denial you're kind of tipping off that you know the government has information that can't be shared. And that opens a whole nother can of worms. So you really need to get information that can be denied publicly, right? So, or that can be put in a denial letter publicly. You know, social media is a great thing too, because a lot of people now don't realize, you know, they'll post something on social media. It's kind of like, hey, here's what you said. Here's what you did. You said death to America. And you're wondering why we're not letting you in. And you said this on Facebook. Yeah, but the government, the way they use social media is very, very limited. They have very strict privacy yeah. rules. Um, I think in a lot of ways too strict. If someone puts something out there in the public, it should be able to be used. Like don't don't make it public if you don't if you don't want people to know about it. You know, that's, um, so that's a challenge. I know, I know we're going to get into uh, towards the end of your book here. I hope we do have have time to do it. Where you have your recommendations. And you outlined pretty well the restrictions that the government places on itself uh, about the rights to privacy. And, you know, I, I agree with that to a degree. Um, 
I think it's stupid that we have access to information that we're not allowed to use. How ridiculous is that? Do you see private industry restricting that? Hell no. You know, when the, you apply for a job, that's the first thing you do to go to social media and see what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But here we are in the government thinking that's, if you put it out there, it's on a public site. It's public information. I think it's asinine to think any other way. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Yeah, and I think, you know, where the gray line is or the gray part of it is is when to access, you know, certain platforms, you need to have an I an ID and you have to have a username and your username is not going to be, you know, federal law enforcement. One, two, three. It's <laughs> <laughs> like those so, stupid people in the cul-de-sac that want to rename their Wi-Fi. you know, Hey, FBI surveillance man too. Nobody's going to yeah, do that. Yeah. And I mean, and you see in a lot of these chat rooms, especially some of the more, um, the, the more squirrely type social media platforms where people talk a lot about glowies and that's like slang for law enforcement who are undercover in these chat rooms. Um, and it's, it be, they'll be like, Oh, this person's a glowy, blah, 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 and whatever. I mean, I read them for years and they never knew. So I guess I didn't glow too much, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like that, that sort of thing. So they're on the lookout, especially those like bad sites. Like they're on the lookout for law oh, enforcement yeah. undercover. But, but you know, Murph, you brought up a point too. This is the work when I was doing it back at justice. One of the things we did, we wanted to get ahead of it because they had just done uh, total information awareness. A guy named Admiral Poindexter at the time was in charge of that. It got killed because of the privacy concerns. Mm-hmm. It brought, was brought back in life different. So we said, hey, look, let's do something wild. I said, let's actually go to the ACLU and bring them in. We're doing our privacy impact. I said, but let's go to the ACLU. You, we were shocked when we were at the ACLU and we said, here's what we're collecting. They go, well, we think you could actually collect more information. Wow. You know, and, and it's to your point, it's amazing is that the handcuffs we put on. Look, if you put it on the front page of the New York Times, why why is it that I can't use it? Exactly. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think in the point of making the book, too, is that if it's something that would be illegal, if it was done, you know, outside your house, then it's still illegal when it's done online, too. So it's not a matter of like civil liberties and privacy. It's a matter of public safety. And that's how we should be looking at it. Exactly. I mean, how hard is that? (laughs) Well, I was moderating a panel for MIT one time, and I had some people on there for an NSA lawyer and stuff like that. I said, so I was asked, I said, let me ask you stuff. Who do you fear more when it comes to the ability to collect information? The FBI, the CIA, and the NSA, or Facebook, Amazon, and Google? And without a doubt, everybody said Facebook, Amazon, and Google. Mm -hmm. To your point, you, you would be shocked how much information they collect. You know, mm-hmm. if people, what people think the government collects versus what the private sector collects, I mean, I'd love to have their collection capability. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, let's, it's as simple as, you know, I'm, I'm looking to get a new truck and, and I'm going online looking at the web, at the web, local car dealership websites. And now I'm being inundated on all my social media platforms with advertising from those dealers. Oh, you want to do something even more scary? Just sit here and make talk about... Um, Australia. Let's talk about something in Australia you want to go visit. Let's talk about going to visit the Sydney Opera House. I'm going to say Sydney Opera House. I guarantee you now, Murph, on Facebook or whatever else, you're going to start getting ads for the Sydney Opera House. Come visit us and come visit us in Australia, man. <laughs> or, or you, you, you were saying Bienvenidos. You know, on, on the opening of our show, and people started getting. <laughs> 
Spanish ads. Spanish language ads. I got Spanish language ads. We would say, hola, hola, you know, welcome, amigos, amigos, players, parents, do, do, that's everybody in free, bienvenidos. And then all of a sudden, all of my ads, and I started to get literally two phone calls in Spanish. Uh, got to stop doing this stuff. Well, let's let's start let's start kind of weaving our way into this too. So, um, you had been there, and obviously layoffs, you know, furloughs going on right now. There's a difference between a layoff and a furlough, but a, but at some point was it kind of like, hey, look, we're not going to be coming back, and like you said, hey, got bills to pay, mortgages to pay. So, um, was that more the deal? Did you have a chance to come back, and it was just going to be too long, or did you just say, hey, um, it doesn't look like this is going to happen. I got to move on. Yeah, the notice was for um, a 90-day furlough, and to be three months without a paycheck was just not something that I could do financially. Um, So whether I would be back at the end of the furlough, and I did think that USCIS was going to get a congressional bailout because I didn't think there's any way, because they sent furlough notices to 70, like 70% of the employees at USCIS. Oh, my God. So almost the whole agency, and that's just not practical. Um, so I did think that there would be the opportunity to come back after the furlough, but I really couldn't be without a paycheck for for 90 days. And it was just such an uncertain time, too, because we didn't know who was going to get reelected. And we didn't know how long this like turmoil was going to be. And immigration is a very you know politically sensitive topic. And so I was just like, I just need to do something else and move on. So I did. So how did how did this opportunity then with Capitol Police come up? Um, was it uh, because I, I got to imagine, though, just from a standpoint of if you're furloughed, a lot of other people are furloughed. So it, it's almost like vultures. You know, one position opens up. There's got to be like a million people, you know, hovering and waiting to pounce on it. Yeah. And some of it was. So um, I applied for a job in March. The furlough notice I didn't get until like July ish. But before right before I think I ended in March. I was the acting assistant director of um, the fraud detection and national security directorate within USCIS. That's an SES level position. And um, I kind of saw what was going on. So I had that that perspective and I knew things were going to go south in the agency. So we always define terms. Hold on. We always define terms. So you said SES. So uh, it's not not SEC Murph. It's SES. SES. Fight me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sorry, just a little personal note back. Well, we're college football too. The, you know, neither the dogs or the tide made it. So the SEC was having a bad Bad weekend, but oh, um, it's terrible. That's so, tell one. us about SCS. What does that mean? So, we there's the government service, right? The GS side of it, and then there's yeah. the SCS. So, what's the difference? GS the goes two? up to level fifteen, and then beyond level fifteen to be an executive is called senior executive service. And so, the higher level positions and agencies, if they're not political appointments, they're usually SES positions. Okay. And so once you get to that level, it's like there's a whole lot more responsibility, a whole lot more, um, you know, you're not doing the day-to-day stuff as much as more more operational. You're managers, leaders, things yep. like that, not necessarily like first-line supervisors. I think I was like a third or fourth-line supervisor at that point. Right. By the time, like I used to, we used to laugh too, but if the problem gets to my level, either I've got the wrong people below me or it's a really big problem, you know, and, and it better be a really big problem. So. Um, yes. So, so when, so you get this. Uh, you start applying in March, but you uh, you get the furlough notice. You said somewhere around July. When did somewhere you somewhere around July? And I think July is around when I interviewed for the Capitol Police position. Um, and I actually applied for it was a director of intelligence position, and I interviewed for it. They ended up 
um, getting someone who had come from NYPD for the director position, but they really liked me and they created an assistant director position and brought both of us on. And what, when was that? How far after July? Uh, October, I started October, 2020. Okay. Uh, beginning of the new government fiscal year too. So some, yes. some, some new money. So, so what did you do during that time? Did you stay at um, USCIS until you moved over or you said the furlough hit about July, right? I got the furlough notice in July, um, and then it was canceled, but then I was issued a new one like a couple weeks later. Um, so there was a lot of like uncertainty and back and forth. Um, but I was, yeah, I started in October. I was still working at USCIS up until the time I left. I would not have left if I hadn't been getting those notices and if things were a little bit more financially stable in the agency, because I did like what I was doing. I did really like what I was doing. I liked USCIS. I liked working for DHS, but it just wasn't practical at that point. So you start at Capitol Police. So give us just your first impressions, the difference in the world uh, between the two worlds, because you come out of a federal side. It's still kind of federal, but now you're getting into something a little bit more limited in scope. I mean, you know, they've got obviously a tremendous responsibility because we're protecting the Capitol. So what was kind of your first initial, uh, you know, views of things about how much the world was different between where you were and where you are now? Yeah. I mean, before I started, in be, after I was hired, but before my start date, I had met with my new supervisor and he like gave me the lowdown. He's like, listen, your team's like really struggling. It needs a total revamp. And that's why we brought both of you in. And that's why we hired outside people because we wanted like fresh perspectives and like a total revamp. Um, and so without, you know, I'll, I'll talk in a second about, you know, the team specifically, but to your question, going from the executive branch to the legislative branch was more of a change than I expected. I figured it was just like an executive branch agency but just in the legislative branch. But it is a whole different beast, like completely different. The politics, well, there's no Hatch Act in the legislative branch, understandably. Um, and people talk very openly about politics, which, you know, in the executive branch, like that is a no-no, you don't do that. Um, and so that was like really surprising for me. Um, that was really surprising. And just like the political pressure and the sway and how the Capitol Police are, um, they are, I, I think, sometimes manipulated by, po by political pressure. That was, that was hard to learn. <clears throat> but then with the team itself, I got there, I had 11 analysts. A lot of them had been there. You know, I think the, the most recent one was, had been there about 10 years. Um, they had not had any formal intelligence training. Um, they were very siloed within the agency, so they didn't work with other divisions within Capitol Police. <clears throat> but they also did not work very well, um, if at all, with other law enforcement agencies or members of the intelligence community. Um, the work they produced was of very poor quality. Um, and the way the team was set up, too, we had two, even though there were only 11 people, there were two, like, branches one was called the open source section and the other was called the intelligence analysis section. The intelligence analysis section sat inside a skiff. So when I got there, I was like, oh, are you guys doing, you know, classified collections, things like that? They're like, no, we don't know how to do that. I'm like, you sit in a skiff. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Let everybody know what a skiff is. 
Uh, SCIF is um, a secure compartmented information facility. So that's where you look at super secret stuff <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. Let me, and, uh, let me ask you before you go any further. The, so the people that, that were working under you, what did they do before they came to the Capitol Police Intel section? Um, some of them had been officers themselves. Um, some of them had come from like civilian positions in law enforcement and, uh, I, yeah, I'd say that that's the summary of, I think, everyone who was there previously. So no one had prior intel experience? No, a couple of them had done, like, intel for, like, a fusion center or things like that, but not any, like, traditional, like, federal intelligence, um, that sort of, like, background. Mm. There, well, right there might be a clue. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, And then the other one was the open source section. Um, And I found out later that the team was divided into two sections because some of the employees had sued each other. It's just like so much drama. Like, (laughs) like, I can't make this up. And so to rather than like address it, they just like split the team. So those people didn't have to work together. And, you know, yeah, and most of what the Capitol Police does and the intelligence collects is open source. It's like 95% open source. So if you've only got five of your 11 people doing open source, they're doing like the bulk of the work for the team. And so I had asked the other team, the one that sits in the skiff, like, well, what do you guys do? They were like, well, we write, you know, threat assessments on events that, you know, members go to. And I said, okay, but members haven't really gone to anything in the past year and a half because we've had a pandemic and they haven't had any events. I said, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, well, you know, if we get some work, we'll do it. And and I said, well, where if you don't do open source, where do you get the information for your reports? And they said, well, we call down to the open source section. They sat on a different floor and they do the research for us and we just put it into a report. And I said, well, that makes you an editor. That doesn't make you <laughs> an intelligence analyst. Yeah. So um, ever, that's what I was doing. Did you ever see the movie Office Space? Yes. So it reminds me of the guy who takes the reports, you know, from the engineers, and then you know, it's like uh, we just take the reports, you know. But I have people skills, damn it, you know. The guy was, uh, you have to watch the movie to get that. But um, let's go back for a second because I think a lot of people. The, the fun thing about a skiff for those folks who don't know is like there's a reason they put those little cubicles outside. Like you have to put your phones in there and everything. You can't go in there. And I almost lost a phone in Turkey because uh, I was like across the threshold. I was in my hand. I was looking at something and I was almost across the threshold. And they went, up. Oh, you cross in there, Skippy. That phone belongs to us. I said, you're joking. He says, no. See that printer over there? Somebody accidentally brought a printer in here. So now we have a printer. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and like if you, um, we had this incident in the Capitol, someone photocopied a classified document on a printer or on a copy machine that was not authorized for that. So the whole copy machine dies mm-hmm. <laughs> until it can be wiped. Like things like that, it's pretty strict. Mm-hmm. Well, but there's a reason for it too. It's, you know, like, um, I mean, it's, there are, you go back in history, there are documented cases back in the old days of the KGB, but when it became the SVR, they actually had a listening device outside the U.S. M, or the uh, uh, State Department. And one of the ways they, they, it took them a couple, or it took them like a year to find it. But when they did find it, the way they found the guy is they, they moved the antenna just enough that it would be out of sync and they waited to find out who came back to adjust it again. And then that's how they busted which agent was, uh, which SVR agent was running the operation, but he would show up with a bag, but they identified him. You know, it was easy to identify him because he was reading the Washington Post upside down. (laughs) (laughs) 
real. You're gonna have well, to cover if you're gonna do something like you that. Got to do something. So let's talk about now getting into this. So um, when you started, this was you said October of 2020. Yes. So, I mean, we're obviously the pandemic now is kind of in full swing. A um, lot of restrictions. How tough was it to do your job in that environment? It was hard because um, you know the week I started was the week of the. Supreme Court, uh, Justice Barrett's confirmation hearings. So, you know, it was a lot of like protest and chaos, like from the get go. And so I was really thrown into this world in like very dramatic, chaotic way. And then we had the presidential election the next week. And then, um, you know, a week after that, we had the first MAGA march. So it was just like one thing after another, after another. And I was trying to, you know, get the team up to speed the person who, and at that point, the director that they had hired, um, Jack Donahue, he hadn't started yet. I started before him um, because I already had been cleared. Like I already had a security clearance and all that stuff. So I could pretty much like just ready to go. Um, and so it was, it was pretty chaotic. And I was also trying to figure out like what the team's capabilities were and, you know, what they could do, what they needed training on all that stuff. And they were for the most part working remotely with the exception of like two people, literally two people who were working in the skiff. Um, so it was, it was hard, like trying to like get things up to speed and get my knowledge. And the person I replaced, he kind of checked out. He checked out like he was he, he wasn't there. I met him twice in the time from the time I started to the time that he left. Um, he left around Thanksgiving time and I only talked to him twice. And he really was not very helpful in trying to like, just like basic stuff, like what are people's hours and who does what? And like, what do you do when there's a holiday and we have to have coverage? Like real, like basic stuff. He was not particularly willing to share what needed, what I needed to know to do my job. So it was up to me to like really figure it out all, all on my own. So you had a team of 11, but in real, in reality, how big of a team did you need? I needed... Probably, probably 30 people for the volume of work that we had, maybe more. What? Do you guys carry response, or I'm sorry, in your previous position, did you carry responsibility for investigating threats against congressmen and congresswomen? When I was in DHS? Or in, uh, in Capitol Police, I'm sorry. In Capitol Police, yes. That was the bulk of what we did, was um, to look into the threats made against members of Congress. And, you know, in 2021, there were about 10,000, close to 10,000 threats made against members of Congress. And it was just slightly less the you know next two years. So wow. huge, huge volume of work. And 11 people. And 11 people, of which <laughs> their skills were of questionable ability. Well, and it, it kind of indicates where the priorities are placed. And it doesn't sound like it was placed right there. Yeah. No, it wasn't. And it's dangerous. And I do think, you know, going forward, probably the biggest threat we have is um, a lone wolf attacking or harming either an elected official and not necessarily 
member of Congress, but it could be at the local level, at the state level, someone who's been elected or a candidate for elected office. Well, we just saw that happen in Japan. Um, one of the uh, political officials over there was stabbed in the neck during a rally. You know, you had. Yeah, that's um, right. Well, and then you look at it doesn't even have to be elected. You saw uh, General Soleimani, who I grew up in Iran. So back in the mm-hmm. day. So, um, you know, they killed him about, I think it's eight years ago. So they, they, it's a big march every time. So they're just a huge attack over there now against, mm-hmm. even though he's dead, you still have this draw of people. It, it, arguably, even though he was military, he was probably more powerful than the civilian leaders. You know, he was the head of IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Quds Force, all of the people who were supplying the explosively formed penetrators of uh, stuff. So, but to your point, th- that's the thing that concerns me more than anything else. Because if you've got somebody who's a true lone wolf, this is almost the the day of the jackal. If you go back to Frederick Forsyth, the novel he wrote about, you know, the lone assassin, um, it, very hard to stop. And so, how do you how how do you stop it? Um, well, I think there's always going to be some sort of red flag and you just need to pay attention to it. And one of the recommendations I have in the book is like have something similar to like uh, uh, see something, say something, but for domestic terrorism, because people don't radicalize overnight. It's not like one day you wake up and say, you know what? I think this ideology is great and I'm going to go kill on behalf of it. That's not how it works. It's a gradual, like um, gradual path to extremism. And then there's a jump too from thinking about to doing. It's not something that not everyone makes that transition, but those who do are quite dangerous. And I can't, although they may not be communicating like online or telling people what their intentions are, there are things going on that people around them should be able to know, but they need to know what the indicators are. Um, And like I talk about in the book, there is a book, um, a booklet that DOJ puts together, and I think NCTC, National Counterterrorism Center, that they put together of indicators of extremism. And um, there's like 41, 42 different indicators. And that's not easily digestible by like most American people, right? Because they're not, they don't, they can't rattle off a list of 40 different things that they should be looking for. But if you have a couple, you know, this is the most common or watch out for this, then people will be able to recognize it and then they can report it and we can stop things before they happen. Right. So let's right back to what I was complaining about earlier with the, with people putting out on social media, public social media and our government is, <laughs> we don't step on somebody's toes. Well, what's more important? Well, you know, but that gets into a great debate, though, right? Because that's it's a philosophical thing, too. But the question is, <clears throat> do we want our government collecting information? It depends, right? What information are you collecting? Is it, you know, it, the, the thing that killed like total information awareness or other stuff, they didn't they didn't address the privacy issue and how they were going to use the information. If you can articulate how we're going to use things like out of the Patriot Act or other stuff, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to collect it. These are the civil liberties protections in place. You got to make the case to the people. But when you don't do it and you say, well, we just need to do this. Well, why? Mm-hmm. You know, that's where I think people and it may serve a good purpose, but we sometimes the government is really they're good at they've got such tremendous capability. But what they're really poor is at communicating and marketing the idea to the public to say, here's why we're doing this and here's how it benefits you. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But the other part of it is there is stuff, especially with lone wolves, that might not be happening online. They may be reading about stuff and being inspired by things or being desensitized because a lot of these you know, groups have have pretty awful things that they post online. But 
their the people around them in their lives you know whether they and a lot of them are loners and don't have a lot of close friends but they probably are living with someone or they have family or they have you know coworkers that might be able to pick up on some of those things so even if they're not posting online there are usually warning signs ahead of time before something happens mm-hmm. you know and and uh, i hate to keep jumping ahead but i your recommendations at the book at the end of the book i agree with everything you put in there Maybe not word by word, but all of the recommendations I do agree with. And one of them is educating. And that's what we say about narcotics is let's un- educate our children at the youngest possible age. If that includes scaring them, well, you know, one of my granddaughters at five years old saw an alligator in the lake behind her house. She was going to go just beat up on that alligator and, and I had to get her up. And by the time I explained to her what an alligator was, she was up in my arms, you know, and she, but she knew the danger of an alligator at that point. And it's, it's a simple analogy that carries over into this. Let's train our children. And unfortunately, we got to train a lot of adults, <laughs> you know, to what the dangers are here, what we're looking at. Hey, Murph, by the way, how are them alligator boots working out for you? <laughs> you haven't seen an alligator in the lake behind our house for a year, have you? <laughs> no. And when I came down to see you that time, I, I was looking for Big Al. Big Al disappeared. Maybe you got a hold of somebody we know, one of our wise guys, you know, made the I think, I think the I think the hurricane last year took care of Big Al. Big Al. Oh, man. Well, so let's let's start getting into this because um, uh, the elections obviously are in November of 2020. So uh, whoever's elected president is going to take, you know, January 20th, you know, the following year, 2021. So you you like, I mean, you couldn't have picked a more volatile, tumultuous time. <laughs> hey, I think let me let me dive. No, we could have started a year ago. No, I want to dive in right in October. You know? <laughs> Do you, I, I, I'm thinking there might be a little Murphy blood in you, Murphy's Law. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a knack for it. i got a knack for it. <laughs> so, so tell us, because, you know, um, part of the work I did at Justice, we ended up briefing at that time Ashcroft and Comey. They were testifying before Congress on, on 9-11. Uh, but, you know, the, it was the statement is like all the lights were blinking red. We've heard that from Christopher Ray. The lights are blinking red. We've heard that now the terrorist threat level, you know, we're concerned about a lot of stuff. So when you got in there, tell us about it, – it's hard to see if the lights are blinking red if you're not connecting the dots, right? you got to collect the dots to connect the dots, right? So when you got in there, what, what did the situation look like to you as you started getting the lay of the land? Yeah, it was pretty worrisome. Um, I talk about it in the book too. So, you know, for the election, my team had written an intelligence assessment and they had like um, a, an annex or an addendum to their report that really did a deep dive on a left-leaning group in D.C. And I remember reading that because the report had already been written when I got there. And I was like, why are they focusing on this group? I don't think that's the threat. Um, and certainly it was not, um, especially since since Biden won. Um, so the, those left leaning groups were they were they were happy. So I knew off the bat that, you know, something was amiss. And just and that was just tangentially like knowing, like hearing and being in tune with like politics and what was going on. Like I knew that there were people who were very unhappy and who were very strong supporters of the president and who um And there was a lot of conspiracy theories, too. Right. And so at that point, with the conspiracy theories, putting, you know, the other extremists aside, like, you know, your white supremacists and your neo-Nazis, the conspiracy theorists there, like essentially, they were saying things that were not based in reality. And they were very vocal about that. And so for me, that was like a major red flag because 
you can't reason with someone who is not um, thinking straight. They're not thinking straight. And it's hard to counter their narrative if their narrative is not based in reality. And I think you think of like, try and have a conversation with someone who has like a severe mental illness. You're not going to reason with them because they're not in the right mindset to be able to think reasonably. And you've encapsulated my entire relationship with Murphy. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) But that's That's like talking to, I think a Randy Quaid in Independence Day, the aliens came down and got me. How do you have a rational discussion with somebody who says they've been kidnapped (laughs) by aliens? You know, well, it's like talking to somebody who says they grew up in Iran. I did. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be with you or not. Yeah, well, you know, back, that was back in the days of the Shah, um, back when the Savat, the secret police that he had. Uh, look, at, <laughs> it just things were different back then. But anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So um, you're in there. Things are blinking red. Keep going from there. Yeah, so things uh, – I was just what I was seeing, just paying attention, like minor attention. Like I didn't even have to – get dig too deep to find this information. Unlike 9-11, where I think a lot of that intelligence was classified, the January 6th, it was all out in the open. This was not planned in like some secret dark back room. This was all planned out in front of us, in front of our eyes. Like you went on to Facebook, you went on to Parler at the time, you went on to Twitter, any of those social media platforms, they all were talking about January 6th and what was going to happen in this rally. And so it was all like there. I mean, I did not to discount like my abilities and my skill set, but I don't know if I needed to be there to tell the Capitol Police like things weren't going to go well on January 6th. Like it was pretty obvious. So what did you do? So um, I had written uh, an intelligence assessment uh, and I wrote it mostly myself. Um, And let me back up to, I did assign it out to an analyst on the team. And the first one was done around um, December 16th or so. And at that point, uh, we didn't have any indication that there was going to be violence in weapons because at that point, Trump hadn't really promoted it yet. And there wasn't there just wasn't intelligence to say and to support and an assessment that would say that it's going to be violent. Um, And so uh, we redid we did an updated assessment a few days later, and I had assigned it to a different analyst because I wanted to see what he could do. He's the first one. It wasn't very well written. It wasn't well researched. It wasn't well sourced, all of that. So I'm, because I'm new too, and I want to see what their abilities are. So I gave it to a different analyst to do the second one. Second one was equally disappointing. So now we're approaching, you know, we're after Christmas now, we're approaching the new year and um, I write a new one and I write the final, this, this one myself. And I take little bits of what the other two people did and what they had found. And then I put in other information that I had found myself. Um, And then January 3rd, and I will say, so Capitol Police for all their intelligence assessments, they had this like canned language at the end in like the last paragraph that just said, you know, situations can change and blah, 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 very general stuff. Um, And so I sent in my assessment to Chief Gallagher, who was the deputy chief over um, the Protective Services Bureau, which is where I worked, where my team sat. And he's like, you know, I read your assessment and it's pretty, um, it's, it's a little bit scary. And he said, your last paragraph doesn't reflect like all the other things that you say in the assessment. Can you beef it up a little bit? And so I wrote, 
um, what I what I wrote, which has been made public now. Jack Donahue, the director, also wrote something. His was more um, a little bit more vanilla and a little bit uh, less um, inflammatory than mine. And when I sent mine in to Gallagher, I said this might be a little bit too strongly worded because I say, you know, Congress is going to be the target. They're coming armed. There are going to be all these extremist groups. They see this. You know, there's a sense of desperation here all of that that I put in the assessment. And he ended up using my version. Um, and that is the version that went to Sund, who was the chief of police, um, and to Capitol Police leadership, warning them of what was going to happen. And so, what was the date on that? January 3rd. Okay. So, you know, when you write an intelligence product, too, there's like, who's the consumer, right? Who are you writing it for? So is was the chief the ultimate consumer, or was it designed to go above that into political leadership? Uh, it was really designed for the chief of police and also the chief of the uniformed operations division because he would be the ones to dictate. Both of them would really be the ones to dictate what the operational plan would be first and foremost, and two, like what the officer's posture should be on that day. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two. 